It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here in the front row. As always, behind the scenes, it's our creator, producer, and director, J.R. Quitman. We're up to episode number 25. Before we get to that, we want to thank all of those who have watched and listened to the first 24. Great guests, great stories. We hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. So now for episode number 25, it is a Super Bowl MVP, a trailblazer as well, Doug Williams. He won a Super Bowl back in 1987 with the Washington Redskins, the first black quarterback to play in the NFL Super Bowl and to also be the MVP as well. That's only part of his story, a great story that starts in Louisiana, growing up, playing a lot of different sports, eventually playing for a Hall of Fame coach at Grambling State as well. A lot to get to, a lot to cover. He covers it all, and a lot of family talk as well. Episode number 25, it features Super Bowl MVP, Doug Williams. Doug, first of all, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on as our guest and, and certainly looking forward to this one. But uh, I thank you for taking some time out of your schedule, a busy schedule, as you're always uh, doing something there. And uh, again, joining us here today, it's a pleasure to have you join us. No, it's my pleasure. And and they're always trying to find something for me to do since I'm sitting around here. They try to make if I had to clean the bathroom or what have you, they try to find something for me to do. So that's the way it is. Well, you're a great ambassador for the organization there. We're going to talk about that and, and so much uh, of your life and you really get into it here. And, and let's start at the very beginning for you. You're born in Zachary, Louisiana, back in 1955. What was life life like growing up at that time and, and sports? How much were you involved in sports at that time as well? Well, you know, my, my whole family basically uh, was, was athletic. You know, my dad played um, – semi-pro baseball, my mom played softball, and growing up, you know, you was always around a ball. My oldest brother uh, played baseball, was fortunate enough to go to Cleveland Indians back in 1964. If you if you know, back in 1964, if you had an arm injury, you know, you're done. And he hurt his shoulder. And, uh, you know, I was a little boy playing Little League Baseball uh, when I was like seven years old. I was playing with the, with the 12-year-old. And uh, grew up with, with doing that. Baseball was actually uh, was the sport that I thought that I was going to get a chance to play. I did play Little League and Pony League all the way up to American League and uh, high school. Played high school basketball and football. I did all three in high school. Didn't do track because I couldn't wasn't fast enough to do track. So they, they told me don't worry about that part. But uh, growing up in, in Zachary was uh, – was one of those situations where when you grow up, you got everybody around you and you feel like everybody lives the way you do. You know, didn't have a lot growing up, but we had great, great togetherness and family time and the people who, who live next door to you in front of you or whatever, you know, it was all family because they had the right to, to do whatever it took when your mom and your dad was at work, wasn't at home. Uh, Mr. Will, Miss Matt, <laughs> Miss Roach, Mr. Johnny Wall, Miss Mary. I, I can remember all of them. You know, they had the right to, to tell you to come there and take their belt off or switch or whatever and 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 and, 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 and tan your honey, as they used to say. And um, she made sure, you know, it was six of us. It was eight all together, but the two older ones had gone on. But it was eight, six of us in the house, so... It was a lot of fighting over there between between the families, but at the same time, we could fight between each other, but you couldn't fight from somebody else. That wasn't going to happen. But but we grew up, man. You know, I grew up like I thought every American grew up. We had a lot of love in the house. Uh, like I said, didn't have a lot, but we, we was all right. We didn't miss no meals, and uh, my mom made sure of that. So that was a good thing. Well, a tight family, is that something that you carried on in your life, that familyness and, and that togetherness that you had growing up? Ain't nothing like family, man. You know, we, we even today, uh, we have a uh, family app where, we, you know, we got about 25 on the family and <clears throat> like uh, birthdays, like we got somebody who has a birthday every day, whether not as a grandkid, a niece, a nephew, or whoever. But, but you know, it's nothing like... Uh, before my mom passed, you know, during the holidays, 
all the furniture, we used to say all the furniture in the house was covered because you had all the grandbabies, the great-grandbabies, the kids, and everybody was there. And it's still that way today, you know. Unfortunately for me, uh, I'm up here in Virginia. I don't get home as much as I would like to and can't participate in a lot of things. But, um, you know, I go on, on Facebook and on Instagram and uh, telephone, FaceTime, or what have you, and see what's going on. And I tell you what, they still be having a good time and a lot of togetherness, man, and nothing like family. Yeah, social media, the, the pluses of it is that it helps keep families together. As you said, you're, you're from a distance from them uh, currently. Uh, as you said, you played several different sports. You went on to high school. Were you playing all those sports in high school as well? Yeah, I played all three of those in high school, basketball, baseball, and football. <laughs> like I said earlier, you know, uh, I thought I, if I had a chance to play professionally, it was going to be in baseball. You know, football, uh, you know, when I was, believe it or not, when I was ninth grade, I was a 5'5". Five, five. I was 5'5 five, five in ninth grade. And, you know, I can remember I was a trainer my seventh and eighth grade year for the football team. And I remember going to Coach Lucas, bless his soul. And I said, Coach, I said, I'm going to play football this year. I was ninth grade. And he told me, he said, little boy, you better get back here behind this cage and, and pass out this <laughs> equipment. I said, no, Coach. So uh, I got me a pair of shoes. They was mismatched. You know, back in the day, you got to take what you can get, you know, and you go on the field, pants badly fit you. But um, I went out there, and, and hey, I was, I get, I thought I was a quarterback. I probably was fourth, fifth string in ninth grade, <clears throat> in ninth grade, but had the strongest arm out of everybody on the field. You know, on Friday evenings, I mean, on Thursday evenings before the Friday night game, we used to always have a, a throwing, a throwing contest. And uh, I always beat everybody throwing, you know. And Coach Lucas said, little boy, you can throw that football, can't you? And, you know, the next year I grew up, I, you know, I was skinny, but I, I got taller, got to be about over the summer, about six feet tall. And um, still was the backup quarterback, you know. And, and also what I did, too, I snapped on punts and I ran down on the kickoff team. So not that I was hitting anybody, but I was on them. And uh, eventually, my, my junior year, starting quarterback hurt his ankle. And uh, I went in and became the quarterback for the rest of the year. And my senior year, that's that's what happened. And um, I guess I played well enough or decent enough to to kind of take get the attention of um, the guy who was recruiting for Grambling. At that time, the NC2A wasn't as strict on um, alumni recruiting for colleges. And they had this one guy that uh, lived down in Baton Rouge. And um, he made sure that all the players uh, in that area that was good enough to play at Grambling got a chance. And, um, you know, he came to me and, and my wide receiver, James Smith, he said, I want to sign both of y'all to go to Grambling. And Coach Rob had never seen Coach Rob. But uh, what had happened was Coach Rob had called uh, my house late one night. We, we had a party line. I don't know whether you know anything about it. Uh, what a party line is, is, but we had 11 people on one, one party line. And um, late one night, my mom woke me up and she said, hey, you you going to Gremlin. I said, say, how you know I'm going to Gremlin? She said, I just got off the phone with Coach Robinson. And he said that you was going to go to class, you was going to go to church, and you was going to graduate. And and so you're going to Gremlin. And, and, you know, I think that's one of the best situations my mom has ever made, well, except for bring me into this world. That's that's the <laughs> second best situation. But no, she she told me that, and I ended up going to Gramlin, man, and you know everything else worked out. Were you re being recruited by some other schools as well? Yeah, but you know back then, back in 1973, uh, when I graduated, you know uh, the South wasn't ready for black quarterbacks yeah. in in the uh, Power Five, SEC, and uh, places like that. So uh, the, the teams that the, the schools that recruited me was like Tennessee State, Jackson State, Mississippi Valley, and Southern University. Those was the guys that recruited me. And, um, you know, I wanted to go to Southern in, in my mind of mind because it would have been close for my mom you know, to, to come and see me play. And, you know, only 20 minutes away from uh, Zachary. But my oldest brother had went to Grambling and everybody – who had went to um, my high school, Cheneyville High School, 
seemed to have gone to Grammar. And it was almost a conceived idea that it wouldn't, it was, I had a no choice but to go to Grammar. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm glad I did cho- choose Grammar and, uh, you know, because everything worked out for the better. Yeah, 1974 to 1977, you're there at Grambling, playing for Eddie Robinson, the legendary head coach. What was it like playing for him? Again, he told your mom what you were going to do. What did he tell you? How, how tough of a coach was he on you? Coach Robinson, man, was a guy, you know, he kind of hard to explain the way, but he was a guy that didn't meet strangers. When he, when, he, when he met a lot of people, man, everybody loved standing up talking to Coach because Coach could talk. I mean, he could talk to anybody, anywhere, any place. But but on the field, you know, as a coach, you know, when it came to work, uh, you had to work because before before the NC2A put in those uh, hour restrictions, you know, you can only work 20 hours a week. Back um, now you can only work 20 hours a week. But when Coach Robinson was at Grambling and I was at Grambling, at that time there was no – no such thing, such thing as 20 hours a week, um, you know, because we went on the practice field at 345 every day. And, you know, we got off at 7, 730. It didn't matter. You know, it, it was going to be anywhere from three to three and a half hours uh, a day. And then, you know, if he didn't like practice, uh, you came back that night. You know, he'd tell you we're going to spend an hour out there and you end up spending two and a half hours. But, but, but Coach Robinson was a guy that every day you go to class, when you pass by his office, he was standing there, standing to see who was going to class. And I've never seen a guy that every day had on a suit and tie. And he was doing it by example because when we traveled, we had to, we had to wear a tie. So he was letting you know it ain't that bad because he wore one every day. But on the practice field, when things was over and we sat around and talked, Coach Rob didn't really talk about the X's and the O's and the he talked about what it takes to be a good American, what it takes to be able to take care of yourself, what you need to do to put yourself in position to to to, to offend for your family and stuff like that. He he made sure that we understood that it wasn't just about football. He I mean he, he didn't worry about the, the pros. He know he never recruited anybody and said, You got a chance to go to pro. That that wasn't his thing. You got it. His thing was you got a chance to graduate, man. That's what it's all about. And and to me, that registered uh, a lot because we had a lot of guys who didn't go to pro that played, but put themselves in position. When you when you if you go back and check Coach Robinson graduation rates, you you realize that it's real high because he made sure we understood what we was in college for, and and it wasn't just to play football. He always said if you're lucky enough to make it. Hell, damn it, can't nobody stop you. That, that, that's how he felt. You know, he used to tell us all the time that, you know, we we from this little old school in North Louisiana. We don't have much, but we get a lot out of it. He used to tell us all the time that that we've done so much with so little, we can almost do anything without nothing. And, you know, that was something that we believed in. And, and the thing about it, when you talk about a team, you had never had to worry about the guys not being together. You know, they all believed in each other. It was family. It, you know, when you talk, I hear people talk about, nah, it's, it's like family. Nah. During that time when I was at Grambling, it was family. And, and you know, around the area, it was close-knit community. You know, you can go, I can I can look at it now, going to Miss Bessie McKinney house on Sunday, eating, eating some of them red beans. Because you can go to somebody on that campus, you got a chance to go to somebody's house who either work on the campus or live around that campus. And you know, you couldn't, couldn't be in a better situation. Yeah, so for you, that, that family atmosphere continued in your college years there at Grambling. And, and, and you're talking about off the field and going to class, but on the field, you guys are pretty darn good. Uh, you know, three SWAC championships during your time there. And in 1977, your senior season was really good for you. Tell us about that year. And, and you know, you're a finalist for the Heisman Trophy mm-hmm. from Grambling State. What did that say about you and your performance <clears throat> that season? Well, you know <laughs> – before the season started that summer, you know, my, my brothers and I, we always played uh, softball during the summer. And um, I actually, I was getting ready to go to a softball tournament uh, that, that Saturday morning. And uh, College A. Nicholson, who was the SID at that time, bless his soul, he called me. He said, hey, man, he said, we're going to put you up for the Heisman. And 
I looked at him. I, I didn't look at him, but I took the phone. I looked at the phone. I said, what you say? He said, we're going to put you up for the Heisman. I kind of chuckled. You know, I said, oh, okay. All right, college, do whatever, man. That's good. He said, okay, I just want to let you know. And uh, lo and behold, you know, it, it it worked out. He put me up for the Heisman. And, you know, when you look at what, what really transpired in 1977, to finish fourth, and I know Walter Payton went before me, finished seventh, I think. But to finish fourth in the Heisman, uh, I think to me it's like winning it, going to Grambling. You know, he, a little small black college up in North Louisiana. And the, the worst thing about the Heisman that year was I wasn't invited. You know, I was in the top four but wasn't invited. And um, – they wanted to know why, but you know it didn't. It didn't bother me because actually we we played in Tokyo during the time they had the Heisman, and uh, they had they had prepared or made some arrangements for me to, if I was going to go to the Heisman, to leave the Heisman and fly to Tokyo. But it didn't happen, so I went on with the team. And uh, after that game in Tokyo, we played Temple. And after that game in Tokyo, you know, we we had to come back with about three minutes and 15 seconds left in the game. We had to drive 85 yards for the winning score. And uh, we did that. And um, after the game in the locker room, Coach Robinson, he stood up, you know, he was got emotional about it. And he said, he said, he don't give a damn what anybody say. He said, we got the Heisman Trophy winner in our room. And he said, Doug Williams, the damn Heisman Trophy winner. You know, and that was that was one of the highest compliments that um, that you can get paid by your coach, Coach Eddie Robinson, and, and that's what he did. Especially when you think about how many players over the years that he has he had coached before me that was great players, and and that's what made it so significant. Well, you were certainly deserving. You led the NCAA in yards from scrimmage, passing yards, and touchdown passes with 38 as well. And it took somebody like Earl Campbell to beat you out. He was the Heisman Trophy winner that year in 1977. So at least it was a very good running back from Texas, but certainly I'm sure from Texas got a little bit notoriety, more notoriety maybe than you did from Grambling State. Well, I'm not so sure that that that, that Earl wouldn't have won it anyway, but but they had two guys that was in front of me, the, the second and the, th- the, and the third guy, you know, was um, Ken McAfee from Notre Dame and, and and Terry Miller from Oklahoma State, you know, those two was, was ahead of me and I finished fourth. And I'm sure because I went to, to a small black college in, in, in Gramlin. And, you know, I certainly think that Earl Cameron was a hell of a running back and he proved that in, in the league. So I, I have no qualms about it. Um, you know, I'm satisfied with the fact that I finished fourth. Uh, in my mind, coming from a small black college, finishing fourth is something that you can't just turn your nose up to. And, and that's the good part about it. Yeah, certainly you brought some recognition, some more recognition to, you know, Grambling State and HBCU uh, here in the, in the United States. You know, you look at that year then, you had a great year. It's time for the draft coming up. I'm sure you're expecting a lot of people to come scout you. There, there was one person there to take a look at you. Who, tell us who that guy was. Well, you know, uh, at that time, I don't I don't know whether you realize or anybody else, but uh, my senior year when I finished college, and, and, and you look at it today, you can laugh at my numbers, which, you know, it was funny back – it's funny today compared to back then. Yeah. But when I left Grambling, I was I was the all-time leading passer in NC2A history. And, you know, you're talking about, eight, uh, what, 8,400 yards, 93 TDs, uh, 38 TDs my senior year. But now you go to sleep in, in four games, five games, and our quarterbacks are throwing that. You know, you, it's something to laugh at. But during that, that year, you know, we had scouts come by, but it was one one general manager that came uh, to Grambling probably about three or four times that year, and that was Kenny Herock, who was general manager of Tampa Bay. And, and when the season was over, there's only one coach who came to uh, to see me, and that was Coach Joe Gibbs. He was in Tampa at that time, and uh, I was doing uh, – student teaching just like just like today they got all these guys coming in for visit and stuff like that but back then the coaches went out and visited players so coach gibbs came to visit me and i was at carroll high school doing student teaching and uh coach came in and 
you know, the principal said, we got somebody up here want to see you. I said, okay. So coach came in and I met coach and, you know, he said, no, nah, don't, don't worry about me. Just go on and do what you're doing. Uh, we was in health at that time. So I had the PE classes come in and coach just sat back there all day in the back of the room. Didn't say a word. You know, a lot of students want to know, why is this guy in here? You know, but nobody knew. And uh, he sat there for two days. And every day that the students would leave, him and I would, would sit around, talk about life, talk about football in general, uh, go to the, the board. And he, he wanted to know our offense, what we ran at Graham. We ran the wing T at Graham. So he wanted me to diagram some of our plays. I think it was, what it was about to see that I remember how our plays work. And he felt like if he can do that, you know, he can comprehend and, 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 and retain what we got to do up here in the league. And and I did that every day, you know. He said, what's your favorite play? And draw it up for me. You know, what are some of the plays y'all run? And, you know, try to tell him how it happened. You know, we we don't we even it was to our left and R was to our right, which is not the way most people do it, you know. But when you learn the system, that's the system that you learn. And, and I learned that system. And every, any play that we had, you know, I basically drew it up, every play that we, we ran um, at that time. And, you know, and he left and went back to Tampa. And I guess he gave um, Coach McKay some, some good vibes. And uh, they ended up drafting me um, in the 17th pick. But at the same time, they had the number one pick. If, if you don't remember, they had the number one pick of that year. And they traded it to Houston for – or Campbell. <laughs> I can't beat or Campbell. <laughs> you know, so that that's just the way it goes. <laughs> so there you go. So Earl Campbell goes to the Oilers. History made there, but your history is is being made. You said, you know, again, off of Gibbs's recommendation, you get drafted by Tampa Bay. What were you thinking that going to Tampa Bay at that time? And and again, John McKay, former USC coach, now the head coach of the Buccaneers. Uh, did you think that was a good fit for you? Well, let me say, I thought it was the perfect fit because of this. You know, when I was coming out of high school, I said to myself, there's only two coaches I wanted to play for, Eddie Robinson or John McKay. Why John McKay? Because in 1965-66, he had a black quarterback. <laughs> you know, and so you, you saw that on television. So I felt like for him, you know, it wasn't a big deal to have, to have a black quarterback. So I felt like if I was going to play for anybody, it was going to be Eddie Robinson or John McKay. And when, when I was drafted by Tampa, man, I thought I was the luckiest man in the world. And, you know, I didn't I didn't know about all the business and stuff like that about playing professional football. All I knew was playing football. You know, I know they hadn't won a lot of games, but that didn't bother me because I felt like we turned that around. And uh, getting drafted and going down to Tampa and, meeting the guys and, you know, it, it just became a bun right off the bat, you know, and I got in there and coach Gibbs gave me an opportunity to, to, to play, you know, when I first got there and contract was a problem. I set out the first week, so I didn't go in. So when I did come back, when I did come back in, uh, Joe Gibbs took me to his house every day, Wow, every day of training camp. You know, after practice, I went home with Coach Gibbs, and we went over. We went over the playbooks. We went over the playbooks every day. I sat at his table. I ate dinner with him and his friend, him and his family. You know, JD Carr and his wife Pat. She fixed meals every day. I ate when when we were through going through the playbooks and everything. He would bring me back home. So you know, a lot of that credit has to go to to Joe Gibbs for for the man that he is and the opportunity that that I had down there at that one year in Tampa with him. Yeah, certainly uh, it, it started a long life relationship, I'm sure, that you, you've had with Gibbs. And, you know, you look back again in, in 1978, in the first round you're drafted, you know, a first of many as, as the first black quarterback drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Do you see yourself, did you see yourself at the time as as kind of a pioneer, a trailblazer for, for guys coming behind you? No, because uh, Elder Dickett was drafted in the first round, but to play wide receiver. Uh, and then that was Shaq Harris. Um, you know, he was with the Rams, Buffalo and the Rams, and uh, finished up in San Diego. And then Marlon Briscoe had played. And uh, Vince Evans was in the league, but, you know, they, they wasn't playing per se. And, um, you know, I never looked at it from a pioneer standpoint. I always felt like 
You know, I was on the coattail of uh, James Harris and Marlon Briscoe and those guys. I think when you talk about pioneers, you got you got to get those guys the credit for being that guy. And um, you know, I, to this day, you know, James Harris and I, we we still talk. And um, you know, it's just one of them things that I appreciate that he was there to be able to talk about the National Football League and the things that happens in it. Well, as you said, you were given the chance to to play quarterback, and you succeeded. Playoffs three out of the five years you're with Tampa Bay as well. You know, what, what was the challenge at that time? They were still a relatively new franchise. They were founded in 1976. So, you know, was it hard for you to to have that type of success with that organization at that time? I really don't think so because I think we, we, we had a, a bunch of good guys and a bunch of good football players. Now, I think when I look back on it as a guy that's played the game and been in personnel, uh, the one thing I look back on is what we didn't do in Tampa, and that was to make sure we had a, a, a great offensive line. I think if we had spent a little more time on the offense as far as uh, the offensive line, we would have been a lot better. Defensively, you know, you can't say enough about the way the defense played. Defense always put us in a position that we had a chance to win. And Coach McKay used to always tell them, say, hey, guys, you keep it close. He said, Dougie will find a way to win it. And that's the, that's the part that, you know, I think when you look back on it, we had an offensive line, it would have been the offense, not Dougie will find a way to win it. It would have been us. And I think that's the part that we missed by building an offensive line. Well, well, certainly it's nice for your coach to have confidence in you. Uh, again, you're there eight years, 78 to, to 1982. You went for the NFC Championship back in 79, uh, uh, lost that, unfortunately. And, and then, as you said, a little bit of the business of the NFL came into play, it looked like. And, and you know, you wanted one thing. They wanted another thing when it came to the financial part of it. And, and, and you went to the USFL. Tell us about that. Take us through that and, and what transpired. Well, yeah, it, it, was, it was five years, you know, from, from, from 78 to 82. And then you become a free agent, but you're not a free agent. Let's say that, you know, it's not like today's free agent. <clears throat> Back then, if you become a free agent, if another team signed you, um, you got to give up two first-round picks. And, um, you know, the Raiders weren't trying to trade for me, but they wouldn't trade to the Raiders because the owner at that time didn't like Al Davis, you know, so that didn't happen. Um, so, 83, you know, my my first wife passed away, had a baby girl, and um, the contract wasn't going well. And, I, you know, my mentality was the fact that, well, you know what? You know, it ain't about football anyway. I just lost my wife and I uh, got a little girl to take care of. I always wanted to be a high school coach because my oldest brother was a coach. I say, I just go home and be a coach. And, um, you know, my daddy got his leg amputated then too. So I had a lot of things going on at that particular time. So football wasn't important to me. So, you know, I say, you know what? I'm going home. I went home to Zachary. Uh, my oldest brother was a principal at um, Northwestern Middle School. So I went there and became a substitute teacher every day at his school, every day. And then I got a call from the Tatum, Bill Tatum, who, who the USFL just well, hadn't started, been around a year, but this is a new organization that was going to start up the following year in, in, in 1984 in Oklahoma. And um, he asked me, would I want to be part of his team? And, and not only that, part of his family. And, um, you know, we talked, he came down, and he made it seem like it ain't about football, it's about family. So I decided to sign with the Oklahoma Outlaws. I did that. Uh, spent a year just going places where we had players try out for the team. And I was always at the tryouts and things like that. And, and the next year, in, in 1984, you know, the team formed in, um, in Oklahoma. You know, we became the Oklahoma Outlaws. And uh, at Skelly Stadium in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we played every home game in either rain or cleat or snow. Uh, I mean, every home game. And uh, we did pretty decent. We, we finished like 500 or somewhere around that neighborhood. And the next year, they they folded. I don't say folded. I think what they did, we transferred from Oklahoma and became the Arizona Outlaws with Frank Cush as my head coach. <laughs> so, you know, I had a chance to be coached by Frank Cush. Uh, Wooden Hoffer, Eddie Robinson, and 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 Coach McKay. You know that's that's a, that's a great 
great uh, number of people to coach and to be a part of, man. And we were out in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't really happy in Oklahoma. I mean, not in Oklahoma, in Arizona. But uh, the owners was, was too nice to me, was real nice. And, you know, we made it work. And lo and behold, the season, it was all, no more USFL. You know, 86, we weren't going to play. And uh, I'm sitting around with, with nobody to talk to, no phone calls, no nothing. And sooner or later, my phone rang. You know, Joe Theismann has gotten hurt in 85. He had broke his, his ankle in 1985. And they had a uh, young quarterback here, uh, Jay Schrader. And Joe Gibbs, again, <laughs> came to the rescue. He, he called me. He said, Douglas. He, he was one of the only few guys that called me Douglas. He said, Joe Gibbs, I said, hey, Coach, how you doing? You know, he said, nothing, man. How you doing? I told him how I was doing. He said, yeah. He said, I'm calling you. I want to find out, could you come to Washington to be a, a backup? <laughs> I kind of laughed a little bit at him. You know, I say, I say, Coach, I say, I can be any up you want me to be because I don't have a job. <laughs> so uh, he said, okay, I'm going to put you on the phone with Bobby Beathard. So I got on the phone with Bobby Belton, and, you know, we worked out a deal, and I flew, flew to Washington. And uh, in 86, then I threw one pass in all of 86. And that's what 86 was all about, you know. And I became a Washington Redskins, and thanks to Joe Gibbs again. Well, that's, that's a crazy five-year span for you. You know, personal loss. You know, you had your comfort, I'm sure, in Tampa Bay, and, and that doesn't go well. You go to the USFL – that doesn't last as long as maybe you wanted it to. What was it like mentally for you during that stretch to eventually get back with Joe Gibbs and to get, as you say, with the Washington Redskins as a backup? Well, the good thing about me mentally, I thought it was good because, you know, like I say, what, what I had working for me was, was a great family. You know, my oldest brother was, was my mentor. So I had people that, from a support standpoint, no matter what I chose to do, uh, they was going to be for it. If I went decided not to play anymore, went home and became a high school coach or a teacher, that, that would have been all right with them. Um, but I, I went on because, you know, my mom and my oldest, my one of my youngest sisters, Jackie, and my mom, you know, my little girl, Ashley, you know, they, they say, you go do what you got to do. Go be, go play. She's in great hands. And, uh, you know, I take my hand off to my mom, bless her soul, and my sister, Jackie for doing what they had to do to make sure that Ashley was, was all right. And uh, mentally, you know, I always talked to my oldest brother, Robert, and and then James Harris was there. You know, I, I talk to people all the time. And, you know, my mindset and my, my, my mental state of mind was, was real good at that time. It's just that if the league folded and, and, and you know, don't know what you're going to do, and then you get a call out of, to Washington and you, you go straight to Washington. And I, when I walked in here, you know, with all the guys that was veterans, I uh, had been to the Super Bowl a couple of times. You know, I thought I had died and went to heaven. And then I'm in D.C. Uh, you know, I couldn't ask for a better place to end up than in Washington. Yeah, so you're there. Like you said, you didn't do much in 86, 87. It's a strike season, right? It's shortened season. Right. So you're coming out of that. You know, what was your goal that year? You and Schrader were, were kind of vying for that starting spot. I know you guys didn't have the best of relationships maybe, but, you know, what what did you approach or how did you approach 1987? Well, in 1987, you know, Jay was a starter, you know. And uh, the way I looked at that was the fact that, uh, hey, he the starter, I'm the backup. But mentally, you know, I didn't look at it as I was a backup because I've been a starter all my life. So, you know, I prepared – for a starter, you know, and I think that was the most important thing. Any backup quarterback, you know, if you've been a starter before, that's how you got to prepare that you are the starter. You know, I didn't want to go in there and have one one game that people say, hey, that was a great game. I want to go in there and say, hey, he could play. And and I think I did that. And, you know, the first game of that season, I remember Jay getting hurt. And I went in and and we, we still end up winning the game against the Philadelphia Eagles. He got hurt in the first quarter. And I became the, the quarterback, and we won, you know, which, which tells me. And Coach Gibbs, I think what Coach Gibbs, he felt good about was the fact that if something should happen to Jay, we got dug. I think he saw it firsthand at that particular time because, you know, his, his thing was 
if you get hurt as a starter, you don't lose your job. You just got to get well before you come back and play. And I think when when Jay got well, he came back and and played. And then I went in a couple of times, other times during the year, and bailed it out. We came back and we won those games. And um, the last thing I think the, the straw that broke the camera back was the fact that we was in Minnesota the last game of the season, and uh, we was going to the playoff anyway. But but we was losing. And uh, Coach Gill called me and put me in, and we came back. We came back, and we ended up winning the game. And at, at his post-press conference, he announced that going into the playoff that Doug Williams was going to be his starting quarterback. Uh, you know, it was a surprise to me because I, I had no idea what he was going to say, and I'm sure none of the players, Jay and anybody else, knew what Joe Gill was going to say. So he he said that, and, you know, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm on now playing saying, dang. You know, and, and now I got to get my mindset right that you ain't the backup no more. You the starter. That that was my mindset, you know. And um, the rest is history, you know, from that standpoint. Yeah, how, how did that decision play out in the locker room going into the playoffs? Well, I can tell you this. It, it wasn't anybody who was disappointed. You know, I think, I think the offensive line loved it, you know, because with me, they knew exactly where I was going to be. A matter of fact, Coach Coach Bubes, bless his soul, he called me Pocket. He, he he told off his line. He said, "Guys, you know, you just give him the pocket. You know where he's gonna be. He ain't gonna be outside. He's gonna be right here in the pocket, and let's do our job." And and that's what they did, you know. And um, as far as all other players, the receivers, and everybody else, you know, but nobody they have no little groups over here and over there saying. You know, I want Doug and I want Jay. It wasn't like that. It was the fact that we got Doug. Let's roll. <laughs> well, you guys rolled all the way into the Super Bowl, Super Bowl twelve. Is it true that you had a root canal the day before the Super Bowl? Is that true? Yes. Um, what happened that Saturday morning, you know, usually teams moved to hotels on the Saturday after practice. So that Saturday morning when I got up, I had I had a pain in my tooth man and it was on my left side it was killing me and I went to the team dentist and I said doc Dr. Barrett I said man my toothache he took a look he said let's and he told coach Gill that we can we got to go to the dentist so I went down to La Jolla right outside of uh, San Diego and um, man they took x-rays and they say hey, we got to do a root canal and for four hours I sat there and they they worked on me they did that root canal, and you know when I got back to the hotel, they was packing their bags, putting it on the bus, getting ready to go. So I, I went and got my bag and put it on the bus and took the ride out to Lawrence Wealth Resort. And when we got there, Lawrence Wealth music was playing. I'm in the room, and if you know Lawrence Wealth at all, and you know what kind of music play, it's that music that just go through your bo- go through your bones, just cheer you a little bit. And when I walked in the room, I said, man, we got to turn that music off. I can't listen to that music with this too. It's like it was going in and just, mm. but um, that night, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm got the playbook and I got a bag of Hershey Kisses. I always had a bag of Hershey Kisses on night for the game. And I'm trying to find out, man, how I'm going to eat these kisses. And I said, you know what? I'm going to eat these. So I, I would unwrap them and put them on my right side. And they just melted away. Should I ate the whole bag of Hershey Kissing. I got up the next morning. I had no pain. I mean, not nowhere. No pain, no anything, no nerves or anything. And I went in and ate breakfast, man. And, you know, we got ready to leave. I got on the bus driving in to, to um, San Diego to, to the stadium. And, you know, I'm just on the bus looking around, man, thinking about how did I get here? You know, what road did you travel to get here and what you had to do to be here? You know, I just thought about so many people that that had a reason for me to be there and people I played with, uh, people who cheered for me. Now I got I'm playing in the Super Bowl today. You know, that's that was going through my mind. Coach Robinson and, and everything was going through my mind at that particular time. Yeah, it's easy to say, oh, it's just another game, but it's not. 
you know, it's a Super Bowl. Obviously, now it's even bigger than it was back in 1987. But was it difficult to keep those emotions in check and then go out and perform as well as you did in that Super Bowl? Well, you know what? I felt like I had to. Uh, you know, I didn't have a choice. I had to keep things in perspective. And, and my perspective was it's a football game. You know, I know it's a Super Bowl, but it ain't it ain't for you. It's the game that's for you. You know, you got to keep it between the lines. You got to be able to execute. So that was the most important thing for me is to realize I knew I was the first black quarterback playing in the Super Bowl. I knew that. Nobody had to tell me that. Um, but then you'd say, man, what, what, what if what if I don't do this? And what if this doesn't happen? Then you say to yourself, don't worry about that. Just go out and play your game. You got a team that you can play with. I had a good team to play with. So I say, hey, you know what? I'm just part of the team. And it ain't all on me. And at the end of the day, that's exactly what happened. It wasn't all on me. It's on us. And uh, we performed well as a team. Well, you individually performed well. Give yourself some credit. 18 of 29, 340 yards, four touchdown passes. You had a number of records since broken, a lot of them by Joe Montana, which isn't too shabby either, uh, to have him break your records. But to be, as you said, the first black quarterback to play in the Super Bowl and then the MVP as well. What was your reaction when you found out that you were the MVP of the Super Bowl, Super Bowl twelve? Right, right. One one record Joe can't break though. He wasn't the first black to play. That's right. <laughs> that that one's not gonna be broken by Joe Montana. <laughs> there you go. No, you, you, you will you, always you know, have that one. You know, there were so many players on that field. You know, uh, first of all, you credit the defense who gave us a chance, gave us the football. You gotta give yeah, the you defense. You won forty two to ten, yeah. so the defense Kevin really Smith ran ball. for two hundred and four yards. Ricky Sanders had a 193-yard pass receiver. Uh, you had an offensive line that gave me the time to do what I, I had to do, you know. And so when you look at this thing, man, you know, being MVP is great. Ain't no doubt about that. But if it had it went somewhere else, you know, you, you could have dealt with it because what would have happened, you know. I, I say all the time, we, we scored 35 points in 18 plays. And, and that was because the defense gave us the football. Offensive line did a great job blocking, and the receivers did what they had to do to make it happen. Yeah, again, 42 to 10, the final score. So uh, the defense did their job. You certainly did your job as you're seeing some of the, the highlights here. And, and again, uh, you know, what was it like? Where, you know, coming off of this now, if you're the Super Bowl MVP, you've got endorsement deals and everything else. What was it like back in 1987 for you? I don't know how many endorsement deals I had, but it wasn't a big thing. The endorsement didn't come my way. You know, I don't think, I think we kind of uh, disrupt endorsements because that's what, that wasn't what they was expected. It didn't happen the way they, they wanted it to happen. So it wasn't a whole lot of endorsement. They probably had one, but other than that, it wasn't a whole lot of endorsement. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, yeah, you want endorsement, you want to make the money and all that. But at the end of the day, you know, we was able to accomplish something that nobody could take away, and that was world champion on the biggest stage there were at that particular time. And, and, and that's how I looked at it. You know, it's kind of like when walking off that field, man, I didn't know Coach Robinson was at the game. That's the thing that blew me away because Coach Robinson was, was waiting on me in the tunnel. The NFL brought Coach Robinson in, you know, and we hugged each other and we both – was throwing snot all over the place. We both was crying. And um, he, he told me, he said, Cap, he said, you don't understand. He said, today, hell, he said, it wasn't about the four TDs that you threw. He said, it's the fact that you got off the turf. You know, he always should tell him about getting up off the turf if you get knocked down. And, and that's what he told me. It was the fact that you got off the turf. And hell, damn it, and you lit him up. He said, it's just like Joe Lewis knocking out Matt Snelling. You know, that, that's exactly what he told me. Well, you're able to win a championship for, for Joe Gibbs, someone, again, your relationship was strong, and then to see your college coach, Eddie Robinson, there. Again, you go back to family. It's, it's, it's run through your life, right? Family is always there, whether it's your immediate family or, you know, your, your college family, your professional family as well. Yeah, ain't no doubt about it. You know, I think, man, family is something that I think, I wish I wish everybody had the same thing that I, that I was able to grow up with, but it, it's not like that. But you kind of tell people that it is, it is about family. At the end of the day, just like now, you know, I, I still got a lot of family members who call, we talk, 
And, uh, you know, when I go home, man, they, they all come into the house. It's, it's something that you can't pay for. You can't orchestrate. It's just something that happened. And that's what family is all about. So, again, you win the Super Bowl in 1987, the MVP, going into 88, still battling for that top spot, right? Mark Rippin comes into the picture as a, as a quarterback as well. What was 88 and 89 like for you? And did you go in assuming that you were going to be the guy? No, yeah, yeah, I did go. I, well, I was the guy going in 88. And, uh, you know, things didn't happen the way that I would like for it to happen. And, you know, I can remember playing against the uh, 49ers in, in 88. And after the game, uh, Bill Walsh, bless his soul, you know, he walked up to me. He just told me, he said, hey, man, young man, he say, you you some kind of competitor. You know, that, that, that resonates with you. You know, but at the end of the day, we did not have a good season. And, um, you know, Mark Ripping was, you know, was, was coming up. And, and I understood that. You know, I'm, I guess, 33, 34 at that time. You know, I didn't have Brady, a Brady type of uh, mentality that I would be here till I'm 60. But, uh, you know, I was dead at that time. That was pretty old for a player, you know. And um, it was getting close to that time. And uh, Coach Gill made some decisions. And so you had to live with it. You were released. How were you released? Did Joe Gibbs let you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I had, I had a. <laughs> it's crazy because he called me in. Coach wasn't gonna cut you without him talking to you. You know, he called me in. He said, "Douglas." So we talked for a while. He said, "Hey, man, you good?" I said, "Yeah, coach, I'm good as I can be." He said, "He said, look, we're gonna. He said, we're gonna let you. We're gonna cut you." And I, I looked at him. He said, "We're gonna bring in Jeff Rutledge." And it wasn't a wasn't a slight of Jeff. It was just that I told Coach. I said, Coach, I said um, a banged a banged up Doug Williams could be the Jeff Rutledge playing any day because I'd had a back surgery and all that. But uh, he said, and he told me he was honest. He said, Look, he said we're going Mark Ripley, young guy. He said the one thing I don't want is to be in that stadium and Mark is not playing well. And I don't want the crowd to go, we want Doug. <laughs> I say, I say, I got you, coach. I say, but you know, this is his my lifetime too, you know, my my livelihood. He said, I understand that. And uh, that was it. You know, that was and we didn't speak for a while. We did not speak for a while. And um I was in Mobile at the senior bowl and coach was at Senior bowl, you know, I didn't go to coach. I didn't go say nothing to coach because, you know, I was still a little, little hot up under the collar. I'm talking about probably three years later, and um, he sent he sent Don Bro, the running back coach, over to me. He said, uh, "Doug," I said, "Yeah." He said, "Coach want to see you um, this evening at his hotel." I said, "Okay." He told me what his hotel room, what his number was. I went, I went over there. And I uh, walked in the coach room, back last, and we sat down and we talked to the office. I said, Coach, I'm all right. I said, I'm good. You know, he 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 felt some kind of way that, you know, he, he released me up under those conditions. But at the same time, he understood that our relationship was stronger than that because of where it started and, and the way it ended. And I told him I was good. I appreciate everything he did for me, giving me this opportunity. And, and to this day, you know, he called me. He called me sometimes sitting in the office. I called him. You know, we still got that relationship. Yeah, as you said, I mean, you were eating at his house. He was taking you to practice from practice. So <laughs> you could tell that's a, a bond that, uh, you know, the business side of professional sports certainly can't break. And it's it's great to see that you guys are still, you know, on great terms with one another. Um, so unfortunately, all pro athletes have to come to a realization that their career is over. When you, realize that what were you thinking what was going to be your next step and and it eventually became coaching but were you thinking along those lines well you know what when i when i first got released i i got a call from the raiders to come out and, and work out and then remember jay Strader was with the raiders at that time and uh, i did go i did go coach Archell was the coach you know had a great workout i thought it was a great workout and uh, came in and i went to al davis office Sat down in his office. We was talking, and and he asked me, uh, "Would I stay 
in the area for a week. <laughs> I say for a week, I say, he said, yeah. He said, I just want to make sure I, you know, whatever decision I make is the right decision. And, I, you know, at that time, mentally, I told Coach, you know, because if it was going to happen, it was going to happen that day. And uh, I told uh, Al, I said, nah. I said, I'm just going to go home. I'm not going to worry about it. And that, and that was it. And, you know, mentally, you know, my, my mind was set up. Coaching is what I always wanted to do. Um, so, you know, I got a chance to do that a couple of times at my old high school and another brand new school. Uh, I went to Morehouse. I uh, went to Grambling twice. Uh, you know, I've, I've had some opportunities and, and I enjoyed it, you know. And uh, when I look back on it, I don't know whether I should have took A up on it or not, but at the same time, I'm not looking back on it and saying I'm sorry for not doing it. Well, you mentioned you coached at Grambling. You didn't just coach here. You succeeded your head coach, Eddie Robinson. After 57 years, he finally retired, and you're the one who takes over. How involved was he in the hiring process, and were you the guy that, that he thought you know, was, was the guy who could succeed him? Well, I don't know how much coach was involved in it, you know, because, you know, 57 years in one play is a long time. <laughs> and then you had a lot of people, you know, didn't want coach to, to step down. So I don't know. It, it's like, you you know, they always say you can always go home. You know, this is one of those situations where going home wasn't up under the best conditions. Let me say that. And um, when I was chosen by Peter Piper, who's, who's gone on too, bless his soul, was the AD to be the head coach. You know, Coach Robinson wasn't involved, but Coach Robinson was still in his office. And I was not going to be the one to tell Coach he was in my office. No, that's his <laughs> office. Because my thing is, Coach Robinson is a guy that you don't you don't replace Eddie Robinson. You bronze his shoes and you put him on the pedestal. So what I did, that was a trailer outside the office. So I went to the trailer. Now my office was in the trailer, man, because Coach Rock, was, he could have stayed there until the cows come home. I'd, I'd have been all right. So eventually things got to the point that, you know, Coach Rock, it didn't hurt our relationship because we, we talked almost every day. And it just got to the point that Coach Rob, I think, came to grip with it and everybody else around him came to grip with it. You know, Coach Rob used to come to practice every day. Uh, the first two years was like a growing up year. You know, we had a, we recruited a lot of young guys. We played them. You know, we we finished like five and six, and next year we finished like seven and four. And uh, the next three years we we were swag champions. You know, so we we gave the young guys a chance to play and grow up. So we got to that point that we got a solid team. And um, you know, we won three straight swag champions. Then we was recruiting with guys. It was good recruiting because they was coming in, taking the plays of the guys that were leaving out. And, um, you know, back in uh, 19, not 19, 2004, uh, John Gruden, John Gruden called me and asked me that I want to come to, to Tampa in 03. And uh, he had asked me the year before, and I told him that I, when the year they won the Super Bowl, he asked me that I want to come to Tampa. I said, man, I'm having too much fun coaching college football. He said, okay. And then the next year, after they won the Super Bowl, you know, I spoke at the, the mini camp the year they won the Super Bowl. I thought maybe they owed me a ring for speaking at the, the mini camp, but I didn't get that ring. But the next following year, he asked me the same question. I told him, yeah. And I, I told the AD and I told the president that I was going, going to Tampa, but neither one of them really believed me. They, you know, they thought I was fibbing. So when, when, the, when the, the thing came in for me to go to Tampa, they all were scrambling, trying to find out, you know, let's do a contract, let's do this. And I, I said, nah, I'm, I've already agreed to go to Tampa. And uh, went to Tampa for from uh, 2003 to, to 2008, you know, sat there. And uh, eventually, Gramlin came calling again. I went back to Gramlin for two years and won the championship when I first got there. The next year, we had a bunch of guys, young guys, was trying to build, you know, we got our brains beat out and the president and I, we, we wasn't on the same page. He was a different kind of guy. And, um, you know, he told me that he was going different directions. So I said, good. He went different direction. 
So he sent me up to this direction where I am today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you were successful as a coach, as you said, three SWAC championships. You were the coach of the year in the SWAC, uh, one of your tenures there at Grambling State. And then, you, you know, you go to the executive side. Was it what attracted you to that side of the game, being an executive because you were with Tampa Bay, Virginia Destroyers, and, and, and now back with, uh, with Washington as well? Um, what attracted you to that? Being around football. You know, and, and, and seeing so many players, you know, you talk about personnel, you know, I thought maybe, you know, for me, I mean, I can go out and scout guys and know whether or not a guy can play, whether or not he can make a team better. And and I did that and enjoyed it, you know. And at the end of the day, man, you know, it's nothing like bringing in a player that, that does well and, um, you know, and you had a hand in it. Not that you the reason why it happened, but the fact that your report says what he could and could be, what he couldn't do and all that. But at the end of the day, personnel is something that should inspire anybody who's in it. Well, again, you grew up and as a quarterback at a big arm. What in your mind makes a good quarterback now? I, I don't think it's so much the big arm, which means it, it don't hurt to have a big arm. I think quarterback got to come in now. It's, it's, it's so much different from when I came in. You know, you got to be able to, to to mix in with the guys that you're going to be playing with offensively and defensively. You got to come in to be that leader. You know, if you're not a leader, to be honest with you, if you're not a leader coming in, the chance of you being a leader, it ain't going to happen. You got to be that guy coming in. You know, you, you got to believe in you. You got to believe in the people that, that are working with. And the other part is, you got to spend time in the building. You got to you, you got to be that guy that they run out the building, tell you it's time to go, flick the light on you. You got to be able to watch tape and and know what everybody is doing on the field and everybody on the other team is doing on the field. That's that's what I like about Peyton Manning and, and Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, man. You know, I'm I'm looking at it. I'm saying, you know, Tom Brady would frustrate me if I was a defensive coordinator because when he walks up to the line, it seems like he knows what everybody's doing. And I think if you're a quarterback, that should be the kind of person you want to be, that guy that you watched enough tape that you almost know what the defense going to do and the coverages, where your, where your receiver's going to be, that, you know, you don't have to look for them. You know where they're going to be. And whenever you turn to throw it, they there. I think the quarterback got to spend a lot of time around the building. You mentioned earlier you're, you're doing whatever, you know, the, the, the organization is asking you to do, whatever they need you to do, but you're a special advisor to the president, uh, Jason Wright. You know, is there one thing that you do specifically? Do you look at personnel at all? No, not doubt. You know, think about it. You know, um, Ron came in and he brought in his own people and he wanted them to be that, those personnel guys. So, you know what? You don't want to step on anybody's toes. And so I don't step on anybody's toes. I talk to Martin Mayhew a lot, but, you know, I'm not in the personnel. I don't sit in the meetings. I don't watch the tape. And, you know, the only thing I see is what they did during the football season. And you can't really tell a player by just looking at that. So the most important thing is stay in your lane, as they always say. You know, I'm, I didn't make it this far not being in my lane. So, um, you know, whatever Jason want to do, you know, uh, what I do, I go visit with him like tomorrow night. We're going to be out and about, you know, going to bi- visit people who got suites and stuff like that, going to dinners and going to meetings and things like that. And it ain't, it ain't bad. You know, when, you, when you've been around as long as I've been around, it's good that they want you around. I think that's the most important thing. Well, you're named one of the 80 greatest Washington players. You're in the ring of honor as well. So certainly they want you around. I mean, what does it mean when you go into the stadium and you see your name up there and, and you you get that kind of recognition for, for what you did? When you look at it, I mean, it was a short amount of time with Washington as a player, but certainly uh, you had a big impact on that organization. Well, I think at the end of the day, it's all about the impact of an individual. You know, you got players that play a long time, uh, but, you know, they played because they was consistent as a player. I think in my case, it was more or less what was the impact Doug Williams, and you know, I can say this you know, we was fortunate enough to win uh three Super Bowls, and uh, you know, this is not bragging anything, but I think that the 1987 
Super Bowl was probably one of the most impacted Super Bowl that we have won. And I say that because all you got to do is look at the parade that we had afterwards and, and the people that was out there. And, you know, it wasn't about white, it wasn't about black, it wasn't about Democrat, it wasn't about Republican. It was about the Washington Redskins at that particular time. And people was shoulder to shoulder. It didn't matter who you were, where you was from, or what what affiliation you are. It was about the Redskins, and you saw it. And I think that in itself was one of the things that stands out to me. Yeah, it certainly speaks to the the power of sports, really, right? It, oh, sports and the success of your team unites everybody. You know, I, I tell <laughs> I tell everybody, you know, you're in Washington D.C. where the chief, the commander in chief, is here. But if the Washington Redskins are winning and they win the Super Bowl, you know, the president had to get over. <laughs> he got to move over a while, you know. It's just one of them times, and unfortunate over the last few years, and hopefully that we get back there. This town is a town that put their arms around their team. And I know there's a lot of frustrated fans, and I understand that, but I think you got to give it time. You know, we, we get to that point. Hopefully, you know, we, we, we get to that point that this team begin to win because this city, this area, the DMV needs winning. And I think once we see winning, you'll see a lot of people putting their arms around this team, man, because it ain't nothing like winning in Washington, D.C. Are you used to calling them the commanders just yet? Yeah, I got to get used to it. You know, um, you know, I, I say the rest kid because that's what we're talking about. Sure. But at the end of the day, it is it is the commanders. And, um, you know, I talk to a lot of the older guys and we talk about it. And they understand that the most important thing about this whole organization right now is remembering the, the, the colors, the burgundy gold stands out, and the history, the people who played in, in, in this organization. And we, if you can do that, remember all that, and, and, and realize that the name has changed for the reason that it changed, and, and say, hey, we are the commanders, and, and go forward from there. Well, again, going back to your college days, Black College Player of the Year twice – and now you've co-founded the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Tell us about that, why it came about, and, and what you're looking to do with that. <clears throat> yeah, the Black College Football Hall of Fame was was something that James Harris and I, we, you know, like I say, we talk all the time, just about every day, basically. And um, we used to talk and say, man, you know, we used to talk about all the great players that, that had gone on the, the black colleges and never been recognized and, and we would just sit around for about two years. I can remember we just sat around. We talked about that. Man, man I hope somebody would start the uh, Hall of Fame, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, James and I started a foundation right after Hurricane Katrina. Because um, we, we had been to a lot of charity events. I went to Hawaii to June Jones event. And um, Shaq was in, in L.A. And I stopped over in L.A. And I said, man, I say. You know, we go to everybody event. We ought to have our own. And then the next year, I went to June Jones event again, Hawaii. And then I talked to uh, Kevin Kevin Kaplan, who's the executive director of Coaching Charities. And I said, Kevin, I want you to stop in L.A. and me and you and Shaq talk about uh, doing this foundation. He said, okay. So we stopped over, and um, he decided to – we started the foundation. It was, it was a Harris William Foundation. And then a couple of years later, you know, we told him, say, we want to do a black college football hall of fame. And, and, and Kevin was there. He, he looked at it. He, he started shaking his head. He was trying to find out. And he knows nothing about black college. You know, he's a white guy. He don't know about no black college. He said, I don't know. I said, and we started running down things to him, talk about guys who've gone on to black college and what they've done in black college and, and then he said, let me sleep on it. So the next morning, he wakes up. He said, guys, I got it. <laughs> so he says, and then the Black College Football Hall of Fame was born out of that. Wow. And that's where we are today, you know, with all the guys that have gone to Black College. And we felt like what we do, we try to honor guys every year that deserve to be honored that hadn't gotten their flowers while they're here. And then we give flowers to some of the guys that, you know, it's gone on home, home, and 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 like that because you know it's nothing like that. And we was fortunate enough um, to get picked up 
by the Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, David Baker. When he was the executive director, you know, we did a, a call with him, and he wanted us to be part of be part of the Football Hall of Fame. And I thought that was something you couldn't pass up. And we felt so good about it because at the end of the day, as long as there's a football, NFL football Hall of Fame, you're going to have a black college football Hall of Fame because we're going to be in it. Or, you know, and, and I think that's the most important thing. And, and the history is so valuable that, um, you know, you can't even think about it. You know, I know a lot of people might not like that kind of history, but at the end of the day, it's history that is history that happened. So we got to recognize it, and that's why, you know, we, we formed the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, as you saw on the, the header from the website, I mean, obviously you're on there, Eddie Robinson, but Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, you know, Michael Strahan is another one at HBCU growing up and before he went to the NFL. So, uh, yeah, there's a, certainly a footprint on the NFL on what uh, HBCU uh, athletes have, have certainly done. So it's great to see this uh, for, for people watching this, are you on social media? Can they follow you? Can they get involved with the, the Hall of Fame there? Well, you know, I'm not a big social media guy. I do have an Instagram. I'm not on it that much. I'm, I got a Facebook. Uh, my Instagram is Bayou Bullet. That's that's who I am. Uh, Facebook, just Doug Williams. You find me on there. But for the most part, I don't do Twitter. That's too much work. I don't, I don't do nothing. My, my, son, my son, who's an assistant coach with the Saints, he be coming all the time, Daddy. You got to do Twitter, man. Nah, he said, "Get somebody to do it for you." I definitely don't want nobody to do it for me because I don't want nobody putting someone that I don't want to be on there. But no, um, you know, I think the Hall of Fame has their website. I don't know. I know they on Twitter, you know, stuff like that. But the Black College Hall of Fame is definitely something that is dear to my heart. One last question: You, you mentioned that you know the burgundy and the gold of uh, of Washington. But that orange for Tampa Bay, going back, that's pretty special. What, what were your thoughts wearing those uniforms back in the day? Because I can remember watching back then and even watching, you know, Vinny Testaverde and some other guys that were wearing those uniforms, and certainly they popped at the time. Well, let me say this, and, and I'm going to say this, and I meant it to the bottom of my heart. I thought we had the best-looking uniform in the league. And anybody, you can people can laugh at them dream sickles all they want, but they know that white and that orange, there wasn't nothing like it. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different than the, the color scheme that they have now. Uh, Doug, this has been amazing. I, I really appreciate you spending time with us here. A lot of time as well, talking about your life, your career, and, and certainly wish you nothing but the best in uh, what you're doing now with the Commanders and, and with the, the Black College Hall of Fame as well. And, uh, again, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here today. Thank you for giving me an opportunity. Wow, great stuff there from our guest in episode number 25. It is Doug Williams. Again, the first black quarterback to play in and win the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl MVP back in 1987 as well. Working now back with the Washington Commanders. And our thanks to the Commanders PR folks, Sean and Jared, for helping us connect with Doug Williams. Also, our thanks to some of the footage you saw from NFL X-Files and NFL as well. Great stuff. Great conversation. We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. And certainly we'll have more coming your way. Make sure you subscribe, like this episode, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. More great guests coming your way shortly. Appreciate you joining us. We'll see you next time in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.